Hey Dreamers, this is Anna from Sweden, and you are listening to one of my favorite true crime podcasts, California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Enjoy! This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So let's get started. And just a quick reminder, this episode is the second part of a two-part series. So if you haven't listened to episode 87 yet, then you're going to want to pause this here, go back and listen to 87 first, which is part one. Otherwise, you're going to be a little bit lost. And to quickly recap from part one, we discussed the January 1998 murder of California Department of Corrections officer Elizabeth Begarin. She was robbed and shot to death after apparently being targeted by a trio of gang members, ostensibly because they had witnessed her husband of only six months, Nuzio Begarin, hand her a wad of money while they were shopping at a mall in Burbank. And from there, it's been surmised that they had a plan to rob them. And it appeared that the assailants then followed the couple as they made their way from Burbank to downtown Los Angeles, finally ending up on a stretch of the 91 freeway that passed through the city of Anaheim. As Nuzio Begarin told it, the car following them sped past, cut them off, forced them off the road, and as he grabbed his 10-year-old daughter to remove her out of harm's way, Elizabeth, with her badge in hand and nothing else, was hoping to ward off their attack. But they would not be deterred, opening fire, shooting her once in the chest and once in the head, making off with her purse and the large wad of cash that was inside. This investigation could have very easily been written off as a robbery gone bad, with a slim chance of the case being solved because of the seemingly randomness of it all, and the lack of evidence to link anyone to the crime. But as the investigation went along, detectives on the case began to question the story that Nuzio Begarin was telling them, even going so far as to believe that the whole story regarding the gang members and the robbery was a thing that never happened. They began to think it was possible that Nuzio had a hand in his wife's death, perhaps even a direct hand, but could they prove it? Were they on the right track? Is this something that he would have done in front of his 10-year-old daughter? That's what we're going to find out today in this 88th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Mystery on the 91, Part 2. Investigators started seeking out people close to Elizabeth, those who knew her best, her family and her friends. 
It's not uncommon for the significant other to be the main suspect at the onset of a murder investigation. But for Nuzio, this wasn't the case. This was a gang-related crime, with no real indication that Nuzio had anything to do with it, as he was clearly not the one who shot and killed Elizabeth. They had been targeted, stalked, and attacked. But based solely on the fact that he had turned so uncooperative during his interview, along with his refusal to allow his daughter to speak to investigators, all the red flags started going up. Elizabeth was born Elizabeth Wheat. Her father, Robert, had served in the United States military, and her mom was Japanese, and though she spoke very broken English, the couple made it work. They were simply a very traditional, hard-working family, and it was, by all accounts, a very loving home, and Elizabeth was a good child. She was close with her family. She loved to please her parents. She was always wanting to do right by them. She was never a troublemaker, and this was a theme throughout her life. She just did well, wanting to live a good life, and this would eventually take her into working for the Department of Corrections. Her family was very proud of her, and she thrived at her job. But her family did not much care for her husband, Nuzio. There was something about him that left them feeling icy. They didn't quite see what she saw in him. Elizabeth had her life together. She was independent, strong, intelligent. She had her head on straight. And they just didn't think Nuzio measured up. Though, lots of parents feel like their kids could do better. But Elizabeth's family strongly felt as though she was settling. Like she had lowered her standards way, way too much in this case. So when she told her family she was headed to Vegas to get married to the guy, they were taken aback. Of course, they couldn't stop her. She was 40 years old. She had the right to do whatever she wanted to do and marry whomever she wanted to marry. Like it or not, she was adamant. As we had gone over in part one, Elizabeth seemed to be in a place where she likely felt that if she didn't tie the knot soon, she was never going to do it. And it's really, really sad that she felt that way about her life because she so did not need a man to make her complete. Of course, you can try telling someone that until you're blue in the face. They're going to feel what they're going to feel. She could have been lonely. She could have had that strong desire to share her life with someone, to have that companion. We all can understand that as well. And nobody is faulting her for wanting to find that life partner. Her family just objected to Nuzio. Of all people, why him? Prior to getting married to Nuzio, Elizabeth and her dad had a particularly close and strong relationship. They spoke to and saw one another all the time. But once she and Nuzio were married her dad began to notice that he was seeing his daughter less and less. And in the occasions that he did get to see her, he could tell that something in her had changed. Something had shifted. His little girl just wasn't exuding the happiness and the joy of life that she once had. He asked her about it. Is she okay? Is something wrong? 
Does she want to talk about it? And she would assure him that all was well. Just don't worry, Dad. If he pressed her more, she would tell him to please not make a big deal about it. It's just whatever. Never mind. She's fine. Any interaction between Nuzio and Elizabeth's family was essentially non-existent. He had very little, almost nothing, to do with them. And if this is sounding familiar, it's because we've likely heard this scenario playing out before. When someone is becoming increasingly isolated from their family, there's usually a reason for it and it's not good. Often, it's because of abuse or it's a way of controlling a person so their family has little to no influence over them or their decision making. What would Nuzio's reasons be for wanting to keep his wife from regular contact with her family? Nobody can say for certain, but it has been speculated that he was just selfish, and her family's relationship with her was a threat to his relationship with her, and he didn't want anyone interfering with their marriage. And it wasn't just her family that took notice of a change in Elizabeth following her marriage to Nuzio. People at work at the jail noticed as well. From what I've described of Elizabeth thus far, it wouldn't be a surprise to know that she had an exemplary record at work. Her attendance was nearly perfect. Her performance was consistently top-notch. But all of that changed just in the short time that she had been married to Nuzio. She began suddenly calling out sick, not being able to make it into work. She had been spoken to about it on a number of occasions. And remember, the special unit that she had been assigned to, she was given notice that if she didn't shape up, she was going to be removed from that position. What was going on at home that was causing Elizabeth to suddenly miss all of this work? Well, as it turns out, Nuzio was making her stay home to provide care for Angelica, which didn't seem to make very much sense because Elizabeth was the one earning the lion's share of the family income. Pretty much all of it. So, what's the deal with that? This is one of those questions I was talking about in the opening of the episode. Why would he do something like that? She's the breadwinner of the family. He's bringing in exactly zero dollars in income. He supposedly had some business ventures that failed. And I'm inclined to not even believe that. I mean, if I'm sitting my lazy butt at home and I'm thinking about starting a business, say, for example, a podcast, and I put forth a bit of thought into it, perhaps a smidgen of effort into researching the idea, and then, oh, it never really got off the ground, then yeah, I could call that a failed business venture, right? I thought about the business. I just never did anything about it. Failed business venture. No, Nuzio came into this relationship with Elizabeth empty-handed. He had nothing. She brought with her the solid career, the home, the car, the retirement plan, the benefits, Everything. That was all hers. So, we see the place in life that she was at. She was set. She just, unfortunately, whether it was pressure she was putting on herself or pressure from society, she saw herself as an incomplete woman 
without a husband or children. And it's a heartbreaking aspect of the story because she totally did not need this man nor any other man. She just didn't see it. And it also didn't seem as though she was being very selective when she settled on Nuzio. She probably saw the opportunity finally coming along to get married without putting much thought beyond that into it. And in the short time the two of them were married, Nuzio managed to run up debts upwards of nearly $40,000, all in Elizabeth's name, all on her credit, and nearly all of it was in the form of cash advances. For the love of Pete, what in the heck was Nuzio doing? Why? What the hell? He has this wife who does everything. She earns everything. She brings everything to the marriage who happily wants to help him parent his daughter. Why is he doing this? Why can't he just slide into his role of stay-at-home dad and let Elizabeth carry on as she has been? These are the questions that have me shaking my head. But as the investigation would find, it seemed that the simple answer was Nuzio had an affinity for gambling High-stakes gambling, as it were. Really? All of this because he has a gambling habit? I suppose it would make sense that all of his so-called business venture failed then. Any money he had in his hands, he took straight to the casino, and of course, he couldn't bring his 10-year-old daughter along with him. So whatever it was he was telling Elizabeth he was doing... It was causing her to have to call out of work regularly enough that she was put on notice that she needed to shape up or ship out. And from there, whatever else was going on, we can only speculate. Obviously, we are beginning to see a darker, more underhanded side of Nuzio Bagarin. In conducting himself in the manner in which he wanted to, he was going to have to maintain control over Elizabeth and this included pushing her family and loved ones out so they would have little to no way of interfering. But then what? I wonder if Elizabeth had any expectations of Nuzio, like he needed to bring in some income, he needed to contribute, he needed to work, something, anything. Yet his answer was to send her spiraling into debt, forcing her to stay home to take care of Angelica while he supposedly went to work, instead heading to the casino, which there are plenty of them in and around Southern California. And maybe on occasion, he was able to come up on a lucky win or two, just enough to placate Elizabeth to get her to believe that he was legitimately earning or even just running up debt by way of cash advances and claiming it was income. Who knows what kind of stupid games Nuzio was playing. The fact was, in six months' time, he managed to tear down what Elizabeth had spent her life building up, and he did it without blinking an eye. And it's probably not going to surprise you when I tell you that Nuzio Bagarin had a history of domestic violence in his background. As the investigation had been focusing in on him, detectives uncovered his past a conviction for assaulting Angelica's mom. 
So it's not a stretch to conclude he was probably doing the same thing to Elizabeth. Everyone who knew her, her friends in particular, people that she worked with, they all described Nuzio as controlling. And I believe them, especially if they knew Elizabeth before her marriage and afterwards. They're going to be the first people to make note of the changes in their friend and colleague. Her family may not have been able to pick up on it as quickly due to the fact that Nuzio was actively attempting to isolate her from them. But he can only do so much to keep her from interacting with the people that she sees on a daily basis at work and whatnot. Though her family did note changes in her as well. One of Elizabeth's co-workers had even mentioned to investigators that Elizabeth had recently been asking questions about domestic violence, but she said it was because she was doing some research. They saw the signs, but Elizabeth did her best to keep things under wraps, which is very, very common for domestic abuse victims because of embarrassment or shame, perhaps even denial. They find themselves constantly making excuses for themselves and their abusers. And every single person, man or woman, who is suddenly being victimized by an abuser can very easily find themselves completely humiliated that they're even in this predicament. But when you consider the life Elizabeth had built for herself, being in the position of authority as an officer with the Department of Corrections, she probably could have never imagined she'd be in a situation where she was being controlled and abused. And according to at least one co-worker, Elizabeth had begun talking about leaving Nuzio and the marriage, and it looked like it was going to be soon. They'd only been married for six months, but that's all it took for her to see that she had made a huge mistake. Some believing that her leaving Nuzio would have happened as early as the weekend that she was shot to death. The question is, did Nuzio know that she was contemplating divorce? Some strongly suspected that he did. But then, when we examine the facts of this case, it seemed as though he himself did not intend to be married to Elizabeth for very much longer himself. Yeah, he was along for the free ride for the time being. But even he's not stupid enough to think that that was going to last forever. Something's going to give, right? Elizabeth's probably not going to put up with his freeloading ass for very long, and he knew this. So what was going to be his solution? What was going to be his out? I'll tell you what the answer was. Three days after they said their I do's, Nuzio Begarin purchased a $1 million life insurance policy on Elizabeth's life. And that clinched it for investigators. There it was, the motive. And as they looked deeper into this, they discovered that not only did Nuzio buy this insurance policy three days after they got married, he was insurance shopping on the wedding day itself. How sad to come to find out this information, dreamers. To know that this guy married her with the full intentions of her somehow winding up dead so he could cash in. But it couldn't be right away. That'd be too obvious. 
Besides, why not spend those six months of marriage completely destroying Elizabeth's life, ruining everything that she's worked for her entire career, hemorrhaging her financially until he can absolutely do no more, and then kill her or have her killed and collect the $1 million on top of all of that? And with that, we answer the burning questions. Why couldn't he have just left well enough alone? Why not be the stay-at-home dad? Raise his daughter, support the home while Elizabeth brought home the bacon, and just live happily ever after? Because that was never his intentions to begin with when he got married. Just like it was never Lacey Roach's killer's intentions to live happily ever after with her and son-to-be, Connor. Lacey and Elizabeth were both victimized by the men they trusted. They were the doormats their husband used and walked all over until they were no longer going to be any use to them anymore. Lacey was about to become a mother. She was going to want to stay home. And everything her killer was going to have and earn was going to be funneled away from him and into supporting her and their son. He was, for the first time in his life, going to be forced to work for the benefit of someone else instead of himself, and he wasn't going to have it. And the same goes for Nuzio. There was a man who likely never worked an honest day in his life. He was a leech who bled Elizabeth dry, and when either she or her finances or both had reached their breaking point, it was time to cash in on her life insurance so he could continue leeching off of her in death as well. These two men, while they went about things a little bit differently, they were definitely cut from the same cloth. For investigators looking into the murder of Elizabeth Begarin, it started to smell like a murder for financial gain. Not so much a random act of gang violence anymore. Could this whole gang angle be a story made up by Nuzio? And that everything about the scene on the freeway didn't actually take place the way Nuzio said that it did? That it was all staged to look like a gang shooting? That he planted this license plate number of the car spotted on the freeway to try and throw investigators off? And he was, in fact, the one who shot and killed Elizabeth? Then he threw that license plate number down on the ground to ensure it would be found by police and they'd start looking elsewhere instead of him. This would explain why he would not allow investigators to speak to Angelica. She could very easily say something that could throw a monkey wrench into his story. He could not allow her to be questioned. But they also wondered... Would Nuzio actually shoot Elizabeth while his daughter stood just feet away? She was 10. She could so very easily speak to that if it happened. They had to think about that one, but they were pretty convinced that Nuzio was responsible. But how? Investigators needed to rewind and go back to the beginning the crime scene. They were not believing this was a crime committed by three gangbangers who stalked them for dozens of miles, forced them off the road, robbed them, and shot Elizabeth to death. And when they began mulling over the other possible scenarios, 
They looked back at the pictures of the crime scene that were taken that night that all of this went down. Looking at them again, through the lens of Nuzio having been complicit, the pictures spoke to a different story than the one he had been feeding them. Nuzio had been driving that night. Elizabeth was in the passenger seat, Angelica in the back. In the pictures of the crime scene, the family's SUV was parked quite nicely along the shoulder of the freeway. There were no skid marks to indicate that he had been forced to come to a quick stop. The vehicle was not askew, nor was it situated in such a way indicative of someone who had been forcibly cut off and driven off onto the shoulder. As a matter of fact, it looked like the person who was driving the vehicle needed to casually pull off to the shoulder for a moment. And from the story Nuzio told them, what he had described as to what happened when Elizabeth was shot, from the position and location of her body in the pictures, it simply did not line up with his version of what went down. And they went even further to say that it was impossible. And then they circled back to the $5,000 that Nuzio had given Elizabeth at the mall in Burbank, right at the main entrance of the Macy's department store. He had handed over a $5,000 wad of cash. Isn't that weird? Yeah, everybody who looks at this case has an issue with it. It seems crazy, right? Like, who does that? Well, let's look at it from Elizabeth's perspective for a moment. Okay, so she's been married to this loser for six months, and he's done nothing but drain her financially causing her to be in bad standing at work, cutting her off from her family and friends at every turn, controlling everything that she does, and likely abusing her physically on top of all of this. And suddenly, they're on this nice family outing to the mall for a day of shopping. And the husband that she's been hoping to start becoming a contributor suddenly hands her $5,000 out of the blue. What he said about it? We can only guess. Here you go, honey. All this money for you to spend any way you want. And she gladly accepts it. Now her guard is down. Her concerns have eased. And he's making an effort. At least, that's what she's thinking. So they live in Lancaster, which is north of Burbank. But they head instead south towards Orange County. What could Nuzio have said about that? Let's head this way. Let's go to Disneyland. It's late. Probably too late to get into the parks, especially in January when operating hours are more limited. Let's go check it out anyway. Maybe we can at least have dinner together at the Disneyland Hotel or just do something different, a change of pace as a family. I'm only guessing, but... I could very easily see Elizabeth being bamboozled by this scumbag, and he's doing it in a way that not only has Elizabeth excited and happy to go along, but Angelica as well. And his plot unfolded from there, ending up with his wife dead on the 91. The thousands of dollars that he had just turned over to his wife, stolen by the thieving gangbangers. 
and he's left with a cool million in life insurance coming his way. So detectives are looking hard at Nuzio as a suspect in Elizabeth's murder. But how he did it was another question. They wanted to try to put the gun in Nuzio's hand, but it didn't seem like that was the case. There was good evidence. Even the word of Angelica at the scene that three gangbangers did this. So where does Nuzio fit into it all? They decided to put him under surveillance. And it was going to be slow going. More than five weeks after the murder, the undercover unit were tailing Nuzio. He was in the South Los Angeles area when they saw him call for a taxi. And he took it for about 60 miles or 96 kilometers north to the city of Lancaster. This is where Elizabeth had purchased her home. That's where he was headed, to her house. The undercover team watched as he got out of the taxi. The cab driver waited for him. Nuzio went inside and about 10 minutes later, he emerged and got back into the taxi. The driver then took him over to a nearby convenience store adjacent to a gas station. But Nuzio didn't go inside the store to purchase anything. He had something in his hand. A bag. It appeared to be a bag of trash. He made his way around to the back of the store to their dumpsters and he tossed the bag in there. The undercovers are watching every single step of this. Nuzio came back around to the front of the building, got back into the taxi and left presumably back to South L.A. where his taxi ride had initiated from. So now, the officers watching this are wildly curious. This was a very expensive cab fare going all that way. At least 120 miles or 190 kilometers plus the wait time. The cab fare would easily top $200. And this was a lot just to toss a bag of trash. So are these cops going dumpster diving? Heck yeah, they are. And in this bag of trash, they found one piece of potentially game-changing evidence. A phone bill from the home that Elizabeth owned in Lancaster. And it was torn up. Investigators were thinking that they've just hit the jackpot right there. They pieced all the pages of the bill back together and started looking up numbers. Anything that sends up red flags. Any calls to gun dealers or to any girlfriends that Nuzio may have been having an affair with. Perhaps he made a phone call to Mr. Light Blue Buick Sedan himself, Jose Sandoval. But alas, there was nothing damning anywhere on the phone records. Nothing related to the case that could be tied back to that phone bill. And that was that. And Nuzio was continuing to do whatever it was he did. Their hands were tied. And they had nothing to hold him on. So they just kept on him. They continued watching him, following him, hoping sometime, someplace, somewhere, this man would slip up. But he just carried on. 
So finally, they decided to call him to inform him that they had obtained a search warrant and they were about to head over to search the home in Lancaster where he was living during the time that he was married to Elizabeth. Officers still surveilling Nuzio saw him rush out of where he was living at the time and began making the trip up to Lancaster himself. And as it were, Nuzio was driving really fast and it was more reckless than police were comfortable allowing him to go, much less trying to follow him and keeping up. They were putting others on the road at risk in doing so. And then the thought crossed their minds that what if he makes a run for the international border and flees into Mexico? They would never see this guy again. So the team surveilling Nuzio radioed the California Highway Patrol to be on the lookout for him and provided them with the information as to what car he was driving. The CHP spotted him speeding and pulled him over immediately. Because they had been told by the Anaheim Police Department to be on the lookout for a murderer attempting to flee, they didn't just stop him, walk up to his car window, and issue him a ticket. No. They conducted a felony stop. And this is where officers surrounding the vehicle from all sides boxed him in and ordered him out of the car, hands up, walk backwards, lay face down on the pavement, all that. And you can imagine the tantrum Nuzio would be throwing in the moment. What the hell are you doing? He can't believe that they're treating him like this. Whatever. He was pissed. And in the meantime, while all of this is happening, the search at Elizabeth's home is underway. And again, they came up with absolutely nothing. So not only are they back at square one, they are in a worse predicament than they were starting off the day. The felony stop conducted on Nuzio was very, very damaging to the case that they were trying to build against him. And for Nuzio's part, well, he would not only follow through on his threats to publicly accuse the Anaheim Police Department for harassment, he would sue them and he would win big $25,000 to be exact. And if the case wasn't already ice cold by then, this put the whole thing into an Arctic freeze. And the Anaheim Police Department weren't the only ones Nuzio and his attorneys were taking to court. He also filed suit against the insurance carrier from whom Nuzio purchased that $1 million policy from, MetLife. They had issued a hold on his claim, citing the suspicion that loomed over Nuzio having something to do with her killing. But as they were closing in on a year since Elizabeth had been killed and nobody had been taken into custody, Nuzio wanted his money and he wanted it immediately. He is a man who makes demands and expects people to comply or else. He will force anyone who he deems to be a roadblock to what his ultimate goals are, through threats and lawsuits. That's how Nuzio Begarin operated. And we can only imagine the sadness and frustration that Elizabeth's family had been made to endure as the man that they knew was responsible for murdering her was continuing to walk free. Elizabeth's father, Robert, he wasn't going to stay quiet. He began a letter-writing campaign mainly to the Anaheim Police Department, 
imploring them to continue their work in seeking justice for his child. And as the months and then years began to pass, he never relented. He stayed on top of the Anaheim PD and made it clear that they were going to get to know him very, very well. And he is not going away, and he is not letting go. He wanted to hold the police department responsible for working his daughter's case. He wanted them to keep on chasing down leads to look for new information until the end of time, if that's what it took. He knew that there was a chance Nuzio Bagarin might just get away with it. But until Elizabeth's dad were to draw his last breath, he would not allow her to be forgotten. And before you knew it, more than a decade had passed, and Elizabeth's case remained cold and unsolved. Investigators were not really looking at the case beyond Nuzio, and by that time he was mostly living in his home country of Romania. He had married again. Together they would have twins, boys. He had carried on with his life, and Elizabeth was a distant memory. Nuzio Bagarin probably wasn't looking over his shoulder anymore either. Elizabeth's dad, however, hadn't moved on. He knew who was responsible for his daughter's death, and somebody out there knows something, and he was determined to dig it up. In 2009, 11 years after Elizabeth was murdered, her dad sat down and penned another letter. This time, he decided to go over the heads of the powers that be within the Anaheim Police Department and went straight to the District Attorney of Orange County, and we have discussed him before, Tony Rakakis. He's come up in a lot of our Orange County cases because he served as DA for 20 years, starting when he was elected in 1999, having finally been voted out in the 2018 election and he stepped aside just this past January of 2019. So when he received Elizabeth's dad's letter, he didn't just glance at it and set it aside. D.A. Rakakis took the letter to heart. This was, after all, the murder of an officer, and her father's persistence resonated with him. He asked Special Prosecutor Larry Yellen, his go-to guy for cold cases, to get on this one, get this case moving again, see what he can find. As soon as he looked at the file and the reports on Elizabeth's case, one thing jumped out at him. Jose Sandoval. Yellen was certain that Sandoval was the key to this. It was his license plate number on that piece of paper that someone ripped up and tried to throw away. Remember the initial investigators thought that it might have been evidence planted by Nuzio in an effort to throw off the investigation. But Yellen didn't see it that way. He saw it as damning evidence that somebody tried to get rid of. That piece of paper was never meant to be found. So regardless of who ripped it up and tossed it onto the shoulder of the freeway, whether it was Sandoval or if it was Nuzio himself, Neither one of them wanted that information falling into the hands of investigators. It wasn't Nuzio's idea for Elizabeth to write that information down. It was Elizabeth's. 
and it was his daughter who tipped off the 911 caller to the existence of it, who in turn mentioned it to authorities, and they were the ones who began looking around for it, and by sheer chance found its bits and pieces on the ground. If Nuzio wanted to plant that, he wouldn't have torn it up and tossed it out. He would have left it inside the car, where it would have been easily uncovered by detectives. Yellen began taking a hard look at Jose Sandoval. His street name was Preacher. At the time of Elizabeth's killing, Sandoval was only 22 years old, and he was known to be an active gang member of a notoriously violent street gang. When police in the initial investigation spoke to him, he provided an alibi, which was backed up by several members of his family. And once the detectives back then began to suspect Nuzio was the one responsible for Elizabeth's death, they focused in on him instead, casting aside any suspicions of Sandoval or any gang involvement in the killing. They thought Nuzio perpetrated the murder and that he acted alone. But now, 11 years later, looking at the cold case with fresh eyes, Yellen believed that theory to be wrong. This was not an act committed by one man. This was a murder conspiracy. You see, he believed Nuzio to be a liar, through and through. Everything about the guy stinks. And Yellen wouldn't trust him any further than he could throw him. But there is one person who was right there that night that he believes spoke to the truth as to what happened on the freeway. The one person who was afraid and scared. Someone who was experiencing the scariest moment of her life said exactly what had happened. And that person was Angelica. Two pieces of information came from the young girl at the time before her father refused to allow her to reveal any more. One, there were three cholos in that car that attacked them. And two, that her mom wrote down their license plate number. Right there was the only truth to have come out of the initial investigation into Elizabeth Begarin's murder. Yellen's theory began to take form. Somehow, Nuzio and the gang members in the car were connected. But when Yellen went back to the Anaheim Police Department to bring them up to speed on what he was seeing, they had long lost hope and interest in the case. They were not sharing in his enthusiasm surrounding this new theory of his, that this was a conspiracy, a murder plot masterminded by Nuzio Bagarin, carried out with the assistance of three Hispanic gang members. This, to the Anaheim Police Department, sounded outlandish. They were stuck in the idea that Nuzio did this by himself, that he made up the whole story about handing over all that money to Elizabeth at the mall because that's just ridiculous, that someone must have seen them exchange this large wad of cash, that they decided to follow them all the way to Anaheim, force them off the road, attacked Elizabeth, stole her purse and the money, and made their getaway. All of it was fiction. And Nuzio was using his daughter Angelica to back up this fantastical tale. And with Nuzio all but residing in Romania, there was nothing more that could be done. They didn't have any evidence. 
they didn't have any proof, and he was out of reach. Yellen, even though he didn't have the support of the police department, he wasn't going to be deterred because they were working with blinders on. He didn't believe that narrative. As a matter of fact, he believed it all actually went down exactly as stated, from the money exchange at the mall, to them being followed by gang members, to them finally pulling over on the 91 and Elizabeth being shot to death, but with two exceptions. One, that Nuzio was in on the whole scheme start to finish, and two, the $5,000 he handed to Elizabeth wasn't his attempt at proving his willingness to contribute financially to their family, which I had speculated was the impression that he was trying to give Elizabeth when he gave her that money. Who are we kidding, right? He would not have willingly handed over one red cent to her, much less $5,000. No, that wasn't his attempt at placating his wife, who he knew was contemplating divorce. What he handed her was the actual payment that was to be made to the people that he hired to have her killed. You heard right, dreamers. The money he gave to Elizabeth to put into her purse was planted there on purpose. When those three gang members in the light blue sedan were following them and Nuzio was playing this little game of cat and mouse, that was all part of the plan. Then they would cut them off on the freeway, shoot Elizabeth, steal her purse, and there it was. A murder for hire. Elizabeth Begarin was carrying the payment for her own murder. All of this played out in a very public area with Nuzio's own daughter to witness and corroborate the whole thing. But the one thing Nuzio hadn't anticipated was his wife writing down that license plate number. Nor did he anticipate Angelica would bring it up to investigators. It was Nuzio who tried to destroy that little piece of evidence. He didn't plan it to frame someone else. He didn't want any connection being made to these guys whatsoever. It took some time, but the pieces were beginning to come together. The pressing matter at hand now was getting to Jose Sandoval and whoever was with him in the car when they confronted Elizabeth on the 91. Investigators were now convinced that they were there. That was his car. Elizabeth told them that, with Angelica's help. Yellen was going after them. Sandoval and whoever was with him, they were the ones to stand to lose the most in this. Get to those people and you will get to the mastermind. They went and dug up that little note that Elizabeth had jotted down just before she died. The license plate and the words, light blue. That vehicle belonged to Sandoval. They started looking for him, and they found him. But after so many years, more than a decade, a lot can change. Sandoval wasn't gangbanging anymore. He had settled down. He had some kids. He was a family man. 
and he had a legitimate career. When Yellen looked at his alibi, he didn't really see all that many people claiming to have been physically in Sandoval's presence after 11 p.m., the night of the killing. His various family members had seen him throughout the day, but the only person who said that they were together at the time of the killing was his cousin, Guillermo Espinoza. All the other alibi witnesses' statements indicated that they were all in bed past 9 p.m. that night. Not one of them could account for Sandoval's whereabouts any later than that. And he and Espinoza ran in the same gang. So investigators were beginning to think that the two men were together at the time in Sandoval's car on the 91 when Elizabeth was shot and killed. In 2001, a grand jury was called to review the details of the case involving the murder of Elizabeth Begarin, and Jose Sandoval was summoned to testify. And this is where we finally find ourselves, at the very real human side of this otherwise tragic story. It's a story when you are dealing with violent members of street gangs. It's almost as if the passage of time can do nothing but help. It shapes the morality, the integrity, the conscience of an individual like Sandoval. It may not come about in its truest form, but they definitely knew that they were looking at a different Jose Sandoval all these years later. With his attorney in tow, as he did every time, Sandoval was questioned for the umpteenth time about how it was his license plate number had been written down by Elizabeth moments before she was gunned down. His story had always been she got it wrong, and every time he would get up and go home. And Sandoval was under the impression that this most recent interrogation would unfold in the same manner. Answer the broken record questions with his broken record answers, get up and walk out the door. His attorney chimed in and said, hey, you know, if you're going to charge my client with something, charge him. If not, then we're going to end this interview. So detectives were like, well, okay, we're charging him. They had sufficient probable cause to hold him. The detective informed Sandoval that he was indeed charging him with first-degree murder with special circumstances, and that meant Sandoval was looking at the potential of landing on California's death row. The threat of that was all it took for Sandoval to begin spilling the details that he had kept inside him for nearly 14 years by then. That was his car on the freeway. Elizabeth had gotten it right. Though there was never any doubt as far as I'm concerned. But he finally admitted, yes, it was him driving. That was his car. He said that he thought they were there to commit a robbery. But it was his cousin, Guillermo Espinoza, who came with the gun. And with that expressing his desires to finally make things right, to find forgiveness and to redeem himself. He pointed the finger at Espinoza as having been the shooter. He was the one who killed Elizabeth. 
He just drove. Though this was great to finally hear after all of these years, was Sandoval being completely forthcoming? Investigators weren't quite buying his story that they were there to rob somebody. I mean, what would be the point of that? Hire to rob a person to what end for what reasons? We actually heard the same exact story a couple of episodes back in the killing in Bixby Knowles with the Schockner family. The killer tried to say that he was hired to rob the house, but that didn't make any sense, especially when you know that there were serious problems going on in the marriage, both in the Schockner case and in this case that we're discussing today. And we know for a fact that Nuzio Bagarin was a terrible husband. And considering what he put his own child through as well, he isn't exactly winning any awards for Father of the Year either. So with Sandoval's statement finished, detectives set their sights on bringing Espinosa in, but he was nowhere to be found. And they really weren't believing Sandoval when he said that he didn't know there was a plan to murder Elizabeth. These guys were cousins and they ran together in the same gang. They don't believe that Espinosa didn't let Sandoval in on the murder plot. But he also had more to add to the story. Remember, according to both Nuzio and Angelica, there were three men. I mean, for whatever Nuzio's word is worth, that's what their story was and it seemed to line up. And Sandoval did also confirm that there was a third person with them that night. And it was a person whose name had never come up in the investigation previously. Rudy Duran. He was also a gang member but affiliated with a different gang. He had also been a former in-law of Espinosa. And it is Jose's story that Duran is the one who planned the murder. He was the one connected directly to Nuzio. It took some time and a little bit of digging, but detectives were finally able to track down Rudy Duran. At the time, he was incarcerated in a California prison. But they weren't just going to sit down and start asking him questions. He was already in prison convicted on some other unrelated stuff. They were going to go there and tell them that they were there to collect a sample of his DNA. They came prepared with a search warrant and everything. They took a Q-tip and swabbed the inside of his mouth, and then they broke the news to him. He had been named as a suspect in a murder dating back to 1998. They had DNA from the scene, and they were there to confirm the sample recovered from the scene was his. They were going to go to the lab, and they'd be back in a few hours to talk to him once they confirmed the DNA match. The detectives were faking it. They didn't have any DNA from Elizabeth's crime scene, but Rudy Duran didn't know that. He wanted to talk, but they reminded him that it would serve him best that he also be upfront with them. They had his DNA, so they really could just file their charges, and this could easily qualify for the death penalty. And just like Jose Sandoval, he did not like the sound of that either, so he started spilling his guts too, start to finish. I was hired by this guy, he began. And with that, the detectives finally had the information to prove what they had suspected 
when they reopened Elizabeth's case. Rudy Duran was hired by a guy to murder Elizabeth Begarin. What guy? Well, a friend of his from a long time ago. He called him up one day and said he had the job for him if he was interested. Don't forget that license plate number, dreamers. For me, that piece of paper looms ominously over this case every step of the way. No matter how long it took investigators to finally put it together, all the credit in the world for solving this case belongs to Elizabeth for writing that down. If she hadn't done that, I don't think we'd be here talking about this today. It has literally haunted me every moment that I've obsessed over this story. That which Nuzio tried to destroy. That which detectives picked up the pieces of. That which led them to Jose Sandoval. That which 14 years later led to Rudy Duran. And he would be the key to solving this case. All of the ducking and diving and dodging that Nuzio had managed to pull off up to this point, it was all about to unravel. Duran finally said what investigators had been waiting to hear all these years. Nuzio arranged the entire plan to murder Elizabeth. They had no doubt he had the biggest motive of all. One million of them. It was the only thing he ever cared about when it came to Elizabeth. The money. And he collected every single one of those reasons. Okay, but what's the connection to Rudy Duran? Were investigators finally able to connect these dots? Yes, yes they were. According to Duran, he and Nuzio had known each other for many years, years before he married Elizabeth. They were neighbors in South Los Angeles. Nuzio was kind of a shady guy. Now, let's not sugarcoat it. He was absolutely a shady guy. And he would hire Rudy Duran to do some shady things for him. What specifically? Your guess is as good as mine. But I imagine whatever it was could be filed under quote-unquote failed business ventures. So then towards the end of 1997, just months after he married Elizabeth, Nuzio approached Duran, asking him if he would be interested in doing this other job that was kind of big. Duran was like, yeah, sure, let's meet up. And when they did... Nuzio asked him he needed him to kill someone, but he also needed him to make it look like a carjacking gone bad. And if he could pull it off, he would be very well compensated. And with that, the deal was made and the plan was set in motion. And it went down and was carried out basically in the manner in which it was supposed to. From the time Nuzio gave Elizabeth that money that was meant to make her and Angelica believe that they were being followed, someone must have seen her with that large sum of cash in her purse. And as they were being followed from the mall in Burbank to the gas station in L.A., 
finally to that freeway ramp in Anaheim. Nuzio, the entire time, was playing into the scenario that they were being followed, targeted for robbery. He pulled over. He got himself and his daughter safely out of the line of fire, and he sent his wife out armed with nothing but her badge and a desire to protect her family, at which point she is robbed of her purse, the payment for the hit tucked inside, and then gunned down in cold blood. In February of 2012, a little over 14 years after Elizabeth was murdered, Nuzio Bagarin was taken into custody and charged with first-degree murder. Nuzio, of course, denied all of the allegations against him. He doesn't know who the hell Rudy Duran is, nor does he know Jose Sandoval or Guillermo Espinoza. He has no idea about any murder plot to kill Elizabeth. He has never met any of these people in his life. He had never been involved with any of them in any capacity, business, criminal, or otherwise. And there was no proof that there had ever been any connection between him and these three street criminals. But while Duran was being questioned, he brought up a pivotal piece of information. Nuzio called him just after the murder as soon as he was finished being questioned at the police station for the first time. Nuzio called Duran and instructed him to lose his number. Don't ever call me, don't ever contact me, or talk to me again. If Rudy was telling the truth, then could there be a record of this call? If they could figure that out, if they could link Rudy Duran and Nuzio Bagarin with solid proof that this call actually took place, the Nuzio was finished. Remember, they still had Nuzio's phone records on file, including that torn up phone bill that they had fished out of that dumpster five and a half weeks after Elizabeth's murder. But they had a problem here. Rudy couldn't remember his phone number from 14 years ago. They had Nuzio in custody. They were set to take him to trial and everything. But they still had not made a connection between Duran and Nuzio that could be corroborated by Duran's claim that they knew one another. I mean, they could go in with just his testimony, but that would be his word against Nuzio's. Investigators were desperate for solid proof, and they just kept going back to Duran. Come on, man. Think back. Can you remember this number? Try hard. And for all it's worth, Rudy Duran, this criminal involved killing Elizabeth, he did what he could to rack his brain. He just couldn't remember it. And then he suggested maybe if the detectives could go back through his arrest record, maybe it would be listed somewhere in his files. Genius, they thought. Investigators went back through their databases and poured over Duran's files and cross-referenced every number he had on record with Nuzio's phone records and the time frame surrounding Elizabeth's death. And they hit pay dirt. There it was. Ten little digits of an area code and a phone number dinged on their computer screens. Lit up in yellow. The detective jumped up and yelled, I got him. They had him nailed to the wall, finally. 
right there in front of his eyes on his computer. The phone number of the home where Duran was residing at the time Elizabeth was murdered appeared on that ripped up phone bill that undercover detectives had fished out of that dumpster all those years ago. Two calls, in fact. One made in November of 1997, just as Ruby Duran had said when Nuzio called him and asked him if he was interested in a big job. And then one just a couple of days after the murder made on January 20th, 1998. Nuzio was stupid, but not completely stupid. He had made those phone calls from someone else's house, a friend, but he had used a calling card connected to Elizabeth's home phone number and charged those calls to her bill. So yeah, Elizabeth was even paying for the calls made to plan her own murder too. What a slimeball. But whatever. They now had the link between Duran and Nuzio. Nuzio Begarin went on trial for the murder of his wife in August of 2013. Both Jose Sandoval and Rudy Duran would take the stand and testify on behalf of the prosecution. And with their telling of what happened, the story behind the murder of Elizabeth Begarin took form. Duran and Nuzio planned the whole murder from beginning to end, with a plan to make it look like a carjacking gone wrong. They were to purposely see the money exchange hands from Nuzio to Elizabeth at the mall. They made themselves look conspicuous to Elizabeth there. They also made themselves conspicuous at the gas station later on. All of that stuff was planned out. That was all orchestrated by Nuzio. He told Duran, look for me at the gas station. The carjacking was supposed to have gone down there. That's why those guys were circling the gas station in their car, like Angelica had reported the night of the murder. But something threw off their plan. Maybe there was a police cruiser nearby, but they had a backup plan. Whatever happened, just keep following Nuzio. The idea was they were going to have Elizabeth think that she was being followed by these guys. Nuzio began driving south towards Anaheim, and that's when Plan B went into action. The plan was still going to be to stop them like it was going to be a carjacking, but it turned into a robbery and murder instead. The money would be inside Elizabeth's purse. Make sure they steal the purse. Nuzio had to keep going, and they were to keep following him until they found a place that would be out of sight of witnesses and traffic. That's when they got to the area of the 91 that was dark and under construction. There was a tall barrier that obstructed them from view. That was the cue Jose Sandoval had to pull out in front of Nuzio and supposedly force him off the freeway. But that's not exactly what happened. Nuzio pulled over, quite casually, and Sandoval followed behind, not in front. Jose watched as Nuzio got out of the driver's seat and he watched as he pulled the child out of the back seat and they both walked towards their car. Nuzio came towards Jose Sandoval's car without any concern for his safety or for Angelica's safety because he knew that there was no real threat 
at least not to his life anyway. Nuzio knew what was going on, and when he had gotten close to Sandoval's car, Rudy Durant asked him, Hey, what's going on? What's the deal? What are we doing? Nuzio told him, Do it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Guillermo Espinoza approached Elizabeth and shot her two times, once in the chest and once in the head. Duran heard Elizabeth's final words. She yelled, no, Tony, no. Tony was the American name that Nuzio had adopted when he came to the United States. Elizabeth knew that he had set her up. When she said no, Tony, no, it was her final plea for him to put a stop to this, but he didn't. Sticking to their plan, Duran took Elizabeth's purse, which contained the payment for their services, the payment for her own murder, and they drove away. As captivated as the courtroom and the jury would be by the testimony of both Rudy Duran and Jose Sandoval, their credibility was shaky at best. I mean, they are gang members. They've both served some serious time, and now they're participants in a murder. And all they needed to do was provide sworn testimony that Nuzio paid them to participate in this plan to kill his wife, and they're basically off the hook for the most part. This was a good deal for them. And there was also that piece of paper with the license plate number written on it, the evidence provided by the victim herself. The question lingered, who tore it up? I've already told you what I thought, but the prosecution was thinking the same thing, that Nuzio tore it up. He did not want that piece of paper to be found. He couldn't leave it in the car, and he couldn't stick it into his pocket. So he did the only thing that he could do. He tore it up into little pieces. He was the only one who could have done that, and his attorney really had no good answer for it. The killers could have done it, right? They didn't even know it existed. It wasn't Angelica. Heck, she was the one who mentioned it to the 911 caller. It could have only been Nuzio Bagarin. The jury took three days to deliberate, and they came back with a guilty verdict. Guilty of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. But they did not find Nuzio Bagarin guilty of the special circumstances of murdering for financial gain. He was sentenced to 25 years to life. Today, he is 58 years old. He will be eligible for parole in 2031 when he is 70 years old. In October of 2013, both Rudy Duran and Jose Sandoval pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter. They were both sentenced to time served and are both now free men unless they've gotten into some other trouble as they both were pretty much on probation for the rest of their lives. Guillermo Espinosa was arrested in Mexico in March of 2016. He pleaded guilty later that same year to voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. He will be eligible for parole in 2030 when he is 55 years old. And that seems like a light sentence for murdering someone. But when Espinosa fled to Mexico and was taken into custody, he was not going to be extradited back to the United States if he was going to be charged with a capital crime. 
So everybody that had a hand in Elizabeth Begarin's death, in some way, shape, or form, ultimately paid for their crimes. And that brings this 88th episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we have covered, please feel free to request to join the California Dreaming Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of the cases we cover, as well as other current true crime stories, other news events, TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries or books, whatever you find that you like to share, please come join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. Don't forget to check out A Sickness in Time. Leave that rating and review on Apple Podcasts for your free autographed copy of the book. The email information will be listed on the show notes of this episode. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with the mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am very proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and talented hosts, so please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find links to all of our podcasts, our merchandise store, our blog, or if you just want to email us with your comments, questions, suggestions, or feedback, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And thank you again so much for listening. I am your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>